This is episode five of uh, Pursuing Peace, a study of Romans chapter 14 and 15, and the diversity that existed in the church in Rome. We've been looking at Romans 14 right now, and, and as we've been looking at it, we've been reminded that not all believers will agree in, in matters of practice. In the church in Rome, some of those believers celebrated special days, while others esteemed all days alike. Some of them chose to abstain from certain foods according to the Jewish dietary laws, while their brothers and sisters ate all foods without question of their origin or what kind of meat they were. Each of these believers, however, believed that they were honoring the Lord God in what they did. And while their views about the Christian life uh, differed, both sides made a commitment to honor the Lord in whatever they did. Now, it's easy for us to want everything to fit into our way of thinking. We have our favorite theologians and speakers. We worship with people who think like us. And there's nothing wrong with this unless we begin to feel that the Christian life is all about us and our preferences. So in Romans chapter 14 and verses 7 to 9, Paul reminds the Romans about the diversity in the body of Christ and that the goal of the Christian life is not about pleasing ourselves, but about pleasing the Lord God. And so we read in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, these words. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that we might be that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. And so in this episode, we'll break down these verses to see how they relate to what Paul is teaching the Romans about living with diversity in the Christian church. Paul begins in Romans chapter 14 and verse 7 by reminding the Romans that the true believer, the true Christian, does not live for himself or herself. Verse 7 says this, For none of us lives to himself. One of the most fundamental truths of the Christian life is that we have been bought with a price and we no longer belong to ourselves. This is the clear teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, which says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you, for you have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The true Christian is one who has given complete control of his or her life to the Lord Jesus. 
And as believers, we no longer live our lives for ourselves, our ambitions, or our desires. We have surrendered to Christ and to his purpose alone. And the only way we can truly live the Christian life is to die to ourselves. We cannot live for ourselves and Christ at the same time. The true believer is one who has made up his or her mind no longer to live for himself or herself, but for Christ alone. So we do not live for ourselves, but for Christ. Now, there's another aspect to this not living for ourselves. Writing to the Galatians, the apostle Paul said this, In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In that verse, Paul tells us that bearing one another's burdens, by doing this, we fulfill the purpose of Christ in our lives. It is the will and the purpose of God that we support and minister and care for one another. Paul will go on to say to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul reminded the believers in Philippi that they were to follow the example of the Lord Jesus in how they cared for one another. He was willing to lay down his life, die a horrible death on the cross for the least of us. Jesus would say this himself in in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. To be a follower of the Lord Jesus, we cannot live to please ourselves. We must surrender our personal agendas and preferences. We must die to ourselves and joyfully serve others. We must consider the interests of others as being as important as our own interests. Notice how Paul goes on in verse 7 to say this, and none of us dies to himself. You know, it'd be very easy for us to think that we live for Christ and others in this life, and when we die and go to be with the Lord, it will then be about us. Paul reminds us, however, that this is not the case. None of us dies to himself, just as we do not live to ourselves Neither do we die to ourselves. While there's tremendous blessing in heaven for each and every one that comes to know the Lord Jesus and accepts him as their Savior, there is tremendous blessing in that. 
but our obligation to Christ Jesus will not cease when we step into through the gates of heaven. Heaven is not about sitting back and letting God serve us. Throughout all eternity, we will continue to serve and to worship God. And our great passion in heaven will not be ourselves and our rest and our comfort and our ease, our ambitions and our pleasures. Our great passion in heaven will be Christ and serving him and ministering to one another. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Living as a Christian on this earth is about serving the Lord as our Lord and Master. In death, that will not change. In verse 9, Paul goes on to tell the Romans, For to this end, he says, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. We belong to the Lord in this life, and we serve him in this life. And Jesus died to make that a possibility. Jesus died and paid for our sins and rose again as Lord. He conquered sin and death on the cross. He did so to, be, to, be, to prove that he is Lord in life, and he is Lord over death and Lord in death. And we are subject to him because of his great victory that he obtained and because he purchased us on the cross of Calvary. Now, the question we ask ourselves as we look at what Paul is saying in these verses is this, what is the application of this to living with diversity in the context of the church? What Paul is telling us here is that we are servants of Christ and called to follow his life and his example. We do not live to ourselves. We live to Christ and we live to him in the sense that we follow him as our Lord and Master and we follow his example. What was the example of Christ as he came to this earth? What is the example we follow? Jesus Christ associated with sinners and ministered to them. He was harshly criticized by the religious leaders of his day for this association. They brought one day a woman caught in adultery to him, and he forgave her with, while they wanted to stone her to death. He ate with tax collectors and sinners as they stood on the sidelines and insulted him for doing so. Jesus worked with Judas, whom he knew would betray him. Jesus washed the feet of Peter, knowing that one day Peter would deny him three times. Will we, like the religious leaders of today, condemn and belittle those that Jesus has accepted and ministered to? Jesus accepted and worked with those who differed 
greatly from him. And as his servants, we need to learn how to be patient and to show compassion for those who differ from us in views and in practices. If we are to follow the example of Jesus, we must learn that we are his servants and we must learn to follow his example. For we do not live for ourselves, but we live for him to follow him and to honor him. The second great application we need to take from these verses is that we are accountable to God for our own lives. We who live must live for him and we who die will die for him and we are accountable to him for our lives. And Jesus speaking uh, in Luke chapter 6 verses 41 and 42 says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your own eye when you yourselves do not see the log that is in your, your eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. How easy it is to see the speck in someone else's eye and not realize that we have a big log in our own. We who are servants of Jesus Christ are accountable to him for our lives. It's easy to be so focused on our brother's failures that we do not see our own. And when we understand that we live for the Lord in this life and in the life to come, we will understand that it is his example that we must follow. And we will become less likely to spend our time judging others and dividing over petty matters and more time following his example of patience and compassion and respect for those around us for whom he has died and those he has saved, even though they are not as mature as as maybe we would like them to be, again, we shall respect and honor them because they are his. And so those of us who understand that we are accountable to God will spend most of our time focused on how we can grow in maturity and how we can follow his example and minister and care for one another as he did for us. There's one more principle I want to uh, understand here as we conclude this reflection on these verses. Paul told the Romans that the Lord Jesus lived and died for them. And how precious is the one for whom the Lord Jesus Christ has died. Speaking to this, the Lord Jesus himself would say, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I wonder how many times our words and our actions have discouraged one such child and kept them from growing in their walk with God. There is a strong connection between the Lord Jesus and his children. Proverbs 17 verse 5 says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. 
Zechariah the prophet in chapter 2 and verse 8 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after the, his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. There's one thing about Israel we know. God tells us here that through Zechariah that whoever touched his people touched the apple of his eye. And Israel the apple of God's eye. We know very a lot of things about Israel. And one of those things was that they struggled tremendously with their relationship with their, their God. They struggled with sin and rebellion. And God often rebuked her and, and she often disappointed God. Yet, despite her constant failure, the Lord says to Zechariah the prophet, touch her and you touch the apple of my eye. Every child of God, no matter where they are in their relationship with him, is precious to God. And as each one needs, and each one needs to be treated with dignity out of respect for their creator and their savior. As servants of the Lord Jesus, we're not here for ourselves alone. Life is not about me, my preferences, my agenda. In life and death, our passion is to serve the Lord God who, who lived and died for us and purchased us with his blood. And he sets the example for us and he lived his life by emptying himself and taking the form of a servant and as a servant willingly served those he created and as a servant he willingly laid down his life for the least of us and he connects himself with those for whom he died and to touch them is to touch him so that in as much as you do it to the least of these you do it to him Life is not about my preferences. It's about Christ and following his example. It is about honoring those for whom he died. It is about serving those he served. It is about accepting those he accepts and demonstrating compassion and patience with those who fall short. He is my Lord and my master. And in life and death, I must follow after him and serve him. And as I do so, I serve my brothers and sisters. I care for my brothers and sisters. I demonstrate passion, compassion and patience with my brothers and sisters who differ from me. Even as Jesus served with Judas, even as Jesus served with Peter, both of whom would turn their backs even for a moment on him, he continued to wash their feet and minister and care for them. Paul challenges us to live for Christ and to follow his example in how we minister and care for one another. This is a study of Romans chapter 14 and, and into chapter 15 called Pursuing Peace. 
Last time we looked at Romans chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, and we discovered how the Apostle Paul reminded the Romans that the Christian life was not about them and their personal preferences alone. The true Christian, according to Paul, did not live for himself or herself, but belonged to the Lord Jesus, and he was their Lord and their Master. And as such, they were to live to please him. And when they die, the true Christian, when he or she dies, they go to be with the Lord. And and that does not change. They continue to live for the Lord and delight in him throughout all eternity. He needs to be the focus of our lives. His example must be the example that we follow. And as Jesus lived his life on this earth, he demonstrated what it meant to live the Christian life. He received sinners. He worked with sinners. He washed the feet of sinners. He laid down his life for sinners. And he calls us to live as he lives. He calls us to reach out in his name to our brothers and sisters in the faith. He calls us to accept them as he accepted them. Now, the fact is that not one of us is perfect. And not one of us has reached our full maturity. We are all in the process of growing in maturity in Christ. And as we support and encourage each other in the faith, we draw nearer to our Lord. Spiritual growth takes place within community. We sharpen and refine each other as we live in community with each other. And this is the context for verses 10 to 12 of Romans chapter 14 that we want to look at today. Let me just read this before we take a moment to break it down and examine what it has to tell us about the judgment seat of God. Romans chapter 14 verse 10 says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul begins in verse 10 of Romans chapter 14 by asking two questions. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Now these two questions go back to what he said in verse 3. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 3, he says this, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. The tendency, according to Romans 14 and verse 3, was for the person who ate everything to look down or to despise the one who abstained and followed the law of Moses. On the other hand, the tendencies of those who practiced the law of Moses was to judge those who did not measure up to its standard. So Paul, as he speaks here, is speaking to both sides of this debate. 
Why do you pass judgment, speaking to those who followed the law? Or why do you despise your brother, speaking to those who abstained from practicing the law? Paul speaks to both of these sides of the camp. And he goes on in in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 to tell them that despite the differences that they had, they had one thing in common. For, he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The one who despised his brother or sister for their refusal to eat all foods would be judged by God. The one who judged his brother and sister because they did not follow the traditions of Moses would also stand before God to give an account of his or her attitude. Now notice the phrase, the judgment seat of God. Paul tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The phrase judgment seat of God is an important one because of what it tells us. The judgment seat belongs to God, and he alone has the authority to sit in this seat. He alone can determine the attitude of the heart and mind. He alone has the right to pass the final sentence. Not one of us is worthy to sit in that seat. And so Paul asks a question here. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? In other words, he says to the Romans, why are you sitting in the judgment seat of God? Will you take his place and pronounce judgment? Do you have the wisdom and the authority to take his seat of judgment? By boldly sitting in his seat of judgment, will you not seal your own fate? As Jesus said to those who were seeking to stone the woman who was caught in adultery, he said to them, He who is without sin may cast the first stone. He who is without sin may judge her and make that final judgment about her and her life. But no one in that crowd that day was found worthy to pick up a stone and cast it. Every one of them fell short of the standard of God. And so none of them could judge her. Will we pick up the first stone and cast it at our brother, even though we ourselves are unworthy? Will we boldly take the place, our place, on the judgment seat of Christ to, to judge in his place? The challenge of Paul here to these Romans was this. Not one of us is worthy to take our place on the judgment seat of God. God alone will make that final judgment. He alone is worthy to take his place on that seat. No one else has the right, the wisdom, or the authority to sit in his place and take on that matter of judging the earth.
Now, Paul goes on in verse 11 to quote a passage from Isaiah 45 when he says this, For it is written, he said, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. In this passage, as quoted from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah prophesies that a day would come when every knee would one day bow and confess to God. The day was coming when God would take his place on the judgment seat and all humanity would come and stand before him. But notice what Isaiah says, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Notice the connection between bowing and confessing. The one who judges is beyond reproach. He is worthy and all creation bows before him and recognizes his worth. He alone is the judge the perfect judge, worthy of our worship and our praise. Now, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has, has this to say, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. But with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul considered, according to this, the judgment of any other human being to be a very small thing. Notice here that he says he does not even judge himself. He didn't know of anything that was wrong in his life. He wasn't aware of any particular sin in his life. But God could prove him wrong. And he challenges us, each the, the Corinthians here, not to pronounce judgment before the time. The time was coming, according to Isaiah, when every knee would bow and confess before God. And on that day, God would bring to light the things that were hidden into our human eyes. And, and he would disclose the purposes of the heart, while Paul viewed being judged by humans to be a very small thing. This was not the case with the judgment of God as he stood before that judgment seat of God. God knew the intentions of his heart. God's judgment was accurate. God's judgment was fair. God's judgment was final. And Paul would submit to that judgment. Paul reminds us in, in the final verse here, verse 12, that each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. We will give an account of ourselves to God. We can live our lives to please other people, but what they think about us in the end does not really matter. 
We can conform to every human standard and live our lives without being an offense to anyone, but people will not have the final say. As we stand before God, the only thing that matters is what He says. Now, it's important that we understand here in the context of Romans chapter 14 that Paul is speaking about the body of Christ and the diversity within the body of Christ. In other words, it is in this context that we speak about the judgment seat of God. And as we do, we need to see this judgment seat of God in the context of Romans chapter 14, which is the fact that God has put us within a body. And as the body of Christ, we care for each other and we help each other as we prepare to stand before God. While our role in the body is not to be the judge, we nonetheless have an obligation to each other. Maturity takes place in the context of a body. We warn each other of danger and the pathway of life. We stand with each other in the trials and the suffering of life. God has placed within this body people with various spiritual gifts. Our teachers encourage us to know the will of God through the study of his word. Our pastors guide us through the valleys and help us to find God in the times when we can no longer see him. Our our helpers and encouragers stand with us in practical support and, 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 and comfort. Our evangelists point us to the salvation that is in our Lord. Our prophets show us that what God is doing and direct us into his purpose. While we leave the judgment to God, we get on with the business of supporting each other and preparing each other to face that judgment seat of God and to stand before God unashamed. Now let's put all of this together in the context of Romans chapter 14. Paul reminds us that there is a judgment coming and each of us will stand before a holy God to give an account of our lives. That is a sobering thought. God has not appointed us to be judged on that final day. In fact, we would make poor judges as we ourselves have often fallen short. God alone is worthy to sit in that judgment seat. But he has called us to stand with each other in this life. He has given us gifts in the body of Christ for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of his kingdom. He has placed within the body each of us so that we can stimulate each other to spiritual maturity. God will judge one day, but he has called us to challenge each other to good works, to bear one another's burdens, to exhort each other uh, to grow in maturity, to pray with each other and for each other, to encourage each other, to warn each other. We do not live for ourselves, but for the Lord alone. And part of living for the Lord is caring for his people and preparing them to stand before him on that final day. This is why he has given us our spiritual gifts and ministries. We must leave 
all judgment to God, but he calls us to encourage each other so that we can become the best servants we can possibly be and to stand before him unashamed on that final day. The last thing the church of Jesus Christ needs today are people who stand on the sidelines criticizing every move we make without lifting a finger to help. Listen to the words of the Apostle James in James chapter 2 and verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? James is telling us that if we all we do is wish someone well, with our words, what good is that? And what is true for physical needs is also true for spiritual needs. If all we do is stand on the sidelines and, and judge, what good is that? Let's leave all criticism and judgment to God and determine in our hearts that instead of taking on God's role as judge, we will reach out and support and encourage to our brothers and sisters. We will warn them of the dangers without judging. We will challenge them to strive for better things without condemning because we realize that we too have fallen short and will need them to encourage us or to warn us when we come to our short, when it comes to our shortcomings as well. May God give us the grace not to take his place as judge, but to stand faithfully with each other, encouraging and stimulating one another to growth so that as that day approaches where we must stand and confess to God, we will be prepared because together we fine-tune and mature one another for the purpose of standing before God and honoring him on that final day.